Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about myeloproliferative neoplasms with Dr. Nikolai Podoltsev. Dr. Podoltsev is an associate professor of internal medicine in hematology and associate director of the Hematology Oncology Fellowship Program at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine in hematology and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Myeloproliferative, that is such a mouthful. Well, uh, Steve, this is something I do pretty much every day, and uh, this is a group of neoplastic conditions. Well, so wait, wait a minute. Neoplastic cancer. Well, yeah, it is a cancer. Okay. It is a cancer. It's a bit different from other cancers because it may go on for quite some time and uh, sometimes doesn't even require any intervention. We do call them neoplasms, MPNs, not MPDs as we used to, which is, you've mentioned, uh, diseases. Oh, did I say diseases? You did say diseases. We call them neoplasms, myeloproliferative neoplasms. Which is a fancy way of cancer. Correct. Saying cancer. Yeah, it seems to me that over the years, hematologists were very phobic about uh, calling these cancers. Is that because they didn't know they were cancers or they just didn't want to upset the patients? Challenging to say, but, you know, in 2005, the major breakthrough happened. This is when uh, we uh, recognized that uh, a lot of these patients have a mutation called JAK2V617F. Mutation is associated with cancer, and I think it became easier for us to call uh, these conditions neoplasms rather than disorders. I see. So these patients have mutations. That means they're born with them? No, you know, most of them, if not uh, overwhelming majority, uh, do not have them when they're at birth. They develop it uh, during their life. And how does that happen? So it's an influence of outside factors and perhaps some genetic predispositions. So these two together can lead to the development of MPNs. Mm. I've been watching the HBO miniseries about Chernobyl, and uh, that had a lot of radiation. I assume that some of those patients might have gotten some mutations. Well, you know, I wouldn't be able to speculate about this, even though I'm looking forward to watch the series myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you don't know whether there was an increase in myeloproliferative neoplasms? Actually, I cannot say, but I can tell you that uh, for the atomic bomb survivors in Japan, there was increased incidence of chronic myeloid leukemia. Which used to be considered an MPN, right? It is actually MPN. It's myeloproliferative neoplasm, but it is very different from all other ones because now we have a very good targeted therapy for this disease, which is a poster child for targeted therapy. And in fact, patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, they enjoy life expectancy similar to general population because of these treatments. I see. But So we're not going to be talking about those tonight, Up right? to you, up to you. I can certainly talk about this as well. No, I don't think so. I think uh, I think we're going to talk about some of the other ones. So, can we parse that word for our listeners, myeloproliferative, and break it down? Because sure, it's so overwhelming to even think about saying that. Myeloproliferative means uh, increased proliferation of myeloid compartment of the bone marrow. What is myeloid compartment? So, you know, bone marrow is the factory of all blood cells, and uh, myeloid compartment is responsible for making red blood cells, uh, some of the white cells, as well as uh, platelets. That sounds like everything. Well, you know, there are also lymphoid cells, and uh, myeloid compartment is not responsible for those. I see. So myeloproliferative means that these 
non-lymphoid things are growing too much? Correct. Uh, so, in fact, if you look uh, at the bone marrow biopsies of those patients, you'll find most of them have a lot more than expected of myeloid cells. I see. And they spill out in blood. So uh, most of these patients will have access of some, if not all, uh, myeloid elements in blood. Mm. So how do patients find out that they have one of these myeloproliferative neoplasms? So a lot of times it's simple uh, CBC, complete blood count, which is performed at the time of the physical. Some of them will present the most, uh, with the most uh, uh, common complication of these conditions, which is thrombosis, arterial thrombosis, strokes and heart attacks, venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and clots in the veins and the legs. Well, that sounds really serious. Correct. And uh, this is actually the major problem with those neoplasms. So I think a lot of patients uh, can suffer from this uh, type of complication and even die from them. So it is important to establish this diagnosis sooner so we can affect those outcomes. But how common are these problems? So uh, speaking about the incidence of myeloproliferative neoplasms, so, so we uh, mostly talk about two major ones, essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera. There is a third uh, uh, common uh, MPN called uh, myelofibrosis. I will put it aside for now, and we can talk a little bit more if you want to later on. So from the standpoint of ETNPV, it's about uh, 10 uh, uh, per million per year or something like that. So I think... Uh, uh, this uh, incidence is not huge, but these patients live for a long time. And, you know, so the number of those patients I'm following is accumulating every year right. because they enjoy long uh, you know, life expectancy. Mm -hmm. But when you talk about establishing a diagnosis early, this isn't common enough that everyone should be screened, right? Yeah, you know, so I don't think every patient uh, uh, in primary care setting should be screened for this condition, but a lot of people get uh, complete blood count done every year, mm -hmm. and uh, primary care physicians can look at it and will see that uh, there's something present in excess, either red blood cells, uh, hematocrit and hemoglobin may be elevated, or platelets may be increased. Sometimes there is increase in white cells together with other cell lines. Mm, I see. Yeah, so I haven't really kept up with uh, recommendations for screening in primary care. I remember some years ago the, the uh, utility of measuring complete blood counts on an annual basis in asymptomatic patients was questioned, you know, uh, but maybe that's changed. Well, you know, so my I, doctor does it. My doctor does it as well, as you know. So I'm not sure if there are any formal guidelines in that regard, but uh, pretty much everyone who goes see primary care physician gets the blood work before or after the visit, and it includes CBC. Okay, so if there's a problem um, that's clinically uh, apparent, it should show up in a in a CBC. Yes, some patients, uh, minority, uh, will be diagnosed with normal CBC. It does occur. So, for example, uh, some patients present with so-called Splunknik vein thrombosis, which is thrombosis in the vessels. Uh, you just love to use those yeah. words. Well, you know, Splunk, uh, you know, thrombosis of the veins and the abdomen. Uh, okay. And uh, about a third of these patients, when tested, will have this JAK2V617F mutation, which I've mentioned before. And this may be an indication that they're actually having myeloproliferative neoplasm, which went undiagnosed until they presented with a clot. I see. And so what happens next to such a patient? So uh, the main um, goal of treatment is to prevent uh, first thrombosis or prevent recurrent of recurrence of thrombotic events. And uh, 
depending on the condition, polycythemia vero, essential thrombocythemia, uh, patients will uh, receive um, uh, usually small dose aspirin um, as well as uh, cytoreductive therapy for patients who are considered high risk for the uh, development of thrombotic events, as well as patients with uh, polycythemia vero who have increased uh, hemoglobin and hematocrit, uh, excess of red blood cells will have therapeutic phlebotomies. Similarly to uh, what happens with uh, blood donors, they will be coming uh, to a pheresis unit where a unit of blood uh, is taken uh, with the purpose of decreasing their hematocrit uh, to a level of less than 45%, which is considered safe. Yeah. So you're actually doing bloodletting like back in the medieval yeah. times. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So something like that is going on for many, many years now, and I think probably the oldest treatment we're using uh, still in current practice. Mm. But you don't use leeches. I personally don't. But one could, I suppose. I guess. I guess, you know. So it's, um, I guess you can, but I think, I think uh, uh, bloodletting is more effective. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had this great image of, uh, you know, this old medieval thing with uh, cups and, and leeches and stuff. Um, but you don't do it that way. You you actually use like a like the you would for a blood donation. Correct. So just a needle in a bag. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Um, so you put them on some anticoagulation, usually aspirin. You say? Yes. If uh, they don't have history of thrombosis and they don't require uh, regular anticoagulation therapy uh, with either warfarin or direct oral anticoagulants, aspirin, eighty-one milligrams is uh, daily is a good preventive strategy uh, for a lot of patients. Now, you used another big word before that I didn't understand, cytoreductive, I think. That was cytoreductive. That's five syllables. <laughs> What's that about? So cytoreduction is a reduction of uh, production uh, of uh, blood cells by the bone marrow. And it is accomplished uh, by a number of different medications. Most of the patients I take care of take medication called hydroxyurea. Hydroxyurea now, as I recall, back in the medieval times when I was a medical student, that was maybe one of the oldest chemotherapy drugs ever developed. Is that not, is that the same one? Yeah, you know, so this drug was developed in Germany in 1869. 1869? So it's 150-year-old drug. Wow, I didn't know they had chemotherapy back then. Yeah, I'm not sure how it was used between uh, that time and when it was FDA-approved in 1967. It was approved for uh, neoplastic disease, and interestingly enough, among those was melanoma, uh, resistant chronic myeloid leukemia, recurrent metastatic, and inoperable cancer of the ovary. I don't think we're using uh, hydroxyurea for most of them these days, but uh, the most recently approved indication was in sickle cell disease in 1998 to reduce frequency of painful episodes in kids with sickle cell disease. Huh. I'm fascinated about that uh, history in melanoma and ovarian cancer, but it's probably not your main to talk about. Correct. That. And I, I cannot really say much more about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it would be interesting to know whether there was actually any efficacy uh, for our listening off uh, audience. Uh, hydroxyurea is usually given as capsules, oral capsules, and at most usual doses, it's, you know, it's kind of like nothing but nothing. It's not like people think of chemotherapy, right? Yeah, no, having said that, it's anti-metabolite and it inhibits DNA synthesis. So it is uh, 
chemotherapy. Uh, we do use it uh, uh, sometimes for patients with acute uh, myeloid leukemia while we are selecting other treatments as a bridge. To knock their counts down. Correct. Uh -huh. And same thing here, you're trying to knock their counts down? Yes. Uh, so here is not a temporary treatment usually. So these patients uh, who are on hydroxyurea continue to take it for years, uh, trying to control their counts and keep them uh, close to normal or at normal range. Mm -hmm. And how is that tolerated? Most of the patients able to tolerate this treatment, about 20% will be intolerant, and uh, the most common side effects are related to skin toxicity, mucosal membrane toxicity. Uh, very infrequently, patients develop liver function, test abnormalities, fever, and uh, uh, pneumonitis, inflammation in the lungs. I see. Um, so overall, usually pretty well tolerated. Yes. But you said that most of these patients have a mutation in a specific gene, right? And uh, you also said that <clears throat> Excuse me. With uh, with chronic myeloid leukemia, they had developed some magic bullet drugs uh, because there's a specific gene there. So, wouldn't it make sense to develop specific drugs for this Jack two thing that you were talking about? Yeah, uh, we do have a drug which inhibits Jack start pathway. It's a Jack inhibitor called ruxolitinib, which is available for management of myelofibrosis since 2011 and for second-line treatment of polycythemia if hydroxyurea is not tolerated or is not working since 2014. Unfortunately, uh, this drug is not as effective as, uh, as chronic myeloid leukemia medications called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So it does not really change the uh, fate of this disease. It does help to control counts similarly to hydroxyurea. Got it. Well, I'd like to talk more about that uh, in our second half. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Nikolai Podolsev, and we've been discussing myeloproliferative neoplasms, which I'm saying faster and faster. Uh, so, Nikolai, uh, we were talking about this uh, ruxolitinib drug, which you targets this specific gene abnormality in some of these diseases, and you, you sounded kind of disappointed about it. And you said also that it was approved in second line after hydroxyurea. So has anybody actually compared the two, uh, just putting people on hydroxyurea versus putting people on this fancier drug? Uh, they were not uh, compared head-to-head uh, -head, uh, because the study which looked at ruxolitinib in patients with polycythemia vera did that after patients received hydroxyurea. Well, you know, I have to say that uh, this was compared to best available therapy and a lot of patients were on hydroxyurea. So it's not the way uh, to perfectly compare two medications because there was no clear randomization to hydroxyurea, but because most of the patients who were treated with hydroxyurea continued to take it, 
uh, Ruxolitinib uh, uh, was superior. I mean, not only because of that, but because it is an effective drug. So I would say it is nice to have this uh, medication as a second-line treatment for those patients. And actually, quite a few of my patients are currently taking it because they could not tolerate hydroxyurea. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I know that at least the drug company which manufactures that particular drug uh, promotes research uh, or publicizes research uh, from some of their studies, which suggests that with long-term follow-up, uh, this drug, I think, improved people's life expectancy, right? So this is actually in myelofibrosis. So, I see. That's so, another myeloproliferative Correct. So myelofibrosis is uh, the worst out of three uh, due to significantly diminished life, exp life expectancy. And uh, we're talking about mm, primary myelofibrosis as well as secondary myelofibrosis, which may develop from polycythemia very an essential thrombocythemia. And this means scarring tissue in the bone marrow, right? Correct, yes. So scarring in the marrow uh, leads to relocation of marrow stem cells to the spleen and other places in the body, as well as multiple other manifestations which impair quality of life of these patients quite significantly. And, uh, you know, this patient's uh, median life expectancy is about uh, six years, actually, when compared to polycythemia vera, whereas this number is about 14 years and uh, close to 20 years for patients with ET. Those are the patients who are diagnosed uh, after age 60. Younger mm. patients have longer life expectancies. I see. And so it's in the uh, scar tissue fibrosis thing where the ruxolitinib may be causing people to live longer? So it's not really clear exactly why uh, survival is improved. Uh, this is a strong anti-inflammatory medication. It helps with uh, symptoms uh, related to splenic enlargement. It helps with general symptoms this patient suffer from, including fatigue, fevers, sweats, weight loss, itching. So uh, some uh, additional analyses uh, of this studies, uh, which looked at uh, uh, ruxolitinib for uh, patients with myelofibrosis, uh, showed that there may be improvement of survival of about 1.5 years when compared to other treatments. Inflammation is bad for your body, so I guess if you limit it, it may improve uh, this important outcome. So, But I don't think it is very clear to why uh, ruxolitinib does that. I see. And I suppose it would be possible then uh, in this polycythemia vera, the, the longer-lived disease you were talking about, that if you followed people long enough and you compared the hydroxyurea to ruxolitinib, if you had long enough, you might see a similar improvement or who knows, right? It's a very challenging to study because of very long life expectancy of those patients. <clears throat> so we spoke about uh, uh, thrombosis as the main complication. Both polycythemia vera and essential thrombocythemia may evolve and they may evolve into myelofibrosis, as we said, much worse disease, as well as acute myeloid leukemia and another myeloid neoplasm. Mm. This particular complication is a very feared one because it is very challenging to treat patients who develop secondary AML after myeloproliferative neoplasms. Mm. <coughs> and is that impacted by any of these new drugs? No. Unfortunately, we do not have disease-modifying treatments, which is certainly a significant need uh, for this patient population, and this is what uh, they're looking for. So there is a drug which was most recently approved in Europe, uh, which is from the class of interferons. And uh, this is Ropeg interferon, which was approved in February of 2019 as a frontline treatment for patients with polycythemia based on the study results conducted in Europe, which showed that it is superior 
to hydroxyurea in regards to hematological response, as well as uh, controlling the number of cells in blood which are positive for JAK2 mutations. I see, but it, if it's like many other interferon drugs, that comes at a cost in terms of symptoms, right? So it seems that uh, based on the study results, they were equally well tolerated. Really? Uh, yeah. Most similar. people I've ever treated with interferon have a bad case of the flu most of the time. But this is ropeg interferon. This is monopegulated form, and uh, you know perhaps uh, that changes not only the frequency of its administration, but also the side effects. I don't profile. know. You're sounding like a drug rep now. Well, you know, so this uh, drug is not available in the United States and only approved in Europe. I see. So it's different than the other similarly formulated interferons that are used used to be used for hepatitis and things like that. Correct. Right? Correct. It's, you know, the drug is similar but different because of the frequency of administration, which is more convenient and less frequent. So, and also there's now data against uh, hydroxyurea uh, from European study, which allowed its approval in Europe. I see. So is it going to be developed or approved here or submitted? I think there are thoughts about that, but I will not speak for the uh, pharmaceutical company so which know. is developing this drug. I cannot be certain. I see. So, But one thing I want to mention that um, there is no overall survival difference, uh, at least you know, as far as we know, because you have to follow these patients for a very long time, and this is not the short-term endpoint you can look at so quickly after initiation of the study. So this is based on uh, molecular, so-called molecular responses as well as hematological responses. So in other words, because patients uh, had less circulating cells that have this mutation, that's assumed to be a good thing. Yeah, we think that if we reduce the circulating clone, uh, that means we can affect disease biology and perhaps, uh, perhaps prevent its evolution but to m higher risk disease like myelofibrosis or secondary AML. But we don't really know that, right? Correct. Yeah, gotcha. So you've gotten some notoriety uh, in the past year by studying that 1867 drug, hydroxyurea or whatever it was, like from the Civil War. Really? Well, you know, so it's interesting that uh, everything new is well-forgotten old, you know, so I think... Uh, that probably sounds better in Russian. Yes, it is a Russian proverb, <laughs> I have to say. You're correct. So um, uh, we investigated a use of hydroxyurea uh, in uh, patients with PVNAT using SEER uh, uh, Medicare database. What does that mean? So, uh, you know, all of the patients uh, who have Medicare, they're registered somewhere, and there is this uh, data which is accumulated about them, including uh, prescriptions uh, they receive for different medications uh, like hydroxyurea. Okay. And we capitalized on that and connected this particular Medicare data set with SEER, uh, which collects data on uh, cancer, uh, diagnosis, uh, and uh, we were able to connect patients who have diagnosis of TNPV to uh, intake of hydroxyurea, or at least the number of prescriptions uh, these people received for this medication. And so let me get this straight. So, <coughs> so, so this database, which I think is probably maintained by the National Cancer Institute, yep. links uh, this cancer data, which lets you see who has these diseases you're interested in, and then it's connected to their Medicare claims to say which drugs they're getting? That's correct. Okay, so you could find out which patients with these diseases are taking any drug? Correct. Okay. Yes, yeah, so uh, we were specifically interested in hydroxyurea because current guidelines are recommended as a first-line treatment uh, for uh, patients with uh, high-risk ET and PV. And the definition of high-risk is uh, uh, related to characteristics which 
uh, were found to be connected with higher incidence of clots, arterial or venous uh, thrombosis. Okay. So uh, our patient population was 66 uh, years of age or older, and p patients who are older than 60 already considered high risk because, in general, this patient population has higher incidence of arterial or venous clots. I mean, just because of their age, they're high just risk. Just because of their age, okay. right? So that made our work somewhat simpler. So uh, we uh, looked at uh, incidence of uh, uh, thrombosis in those patients as well as their survival. So we also looked in polycythemia vera patients, we looked at the uh, therapeutic phlebotomy use. And uh, we analyzed this data and uh, discovered that uh, use of phlebotomy and hydroxyurea was associated with better outcomes. Specifically, in both essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera, patients had better survival as well as uh, decreased incidence of thrombotic events. Hmm. How big was the difference? <coughs> so the difference uh, was uh, reasonably significant. So uh, we uh, appreciated that uh, uh, those who were treated uh, with phlebotomy among polycythemia vera patients had a 35% reduction in death and 48% reduction in the risk of thrombosis. Oh, that's a lot. Yes. So, and uh, we also looked at uh, the use of hydroxyurea in this uh, uh, group of patients. And every 10% increase in the proportion of days covered uh, by hydroxyurea treatment was associated with 8% lower risk of death and thrombosis. So for every 10% more that you took the drug, you get 8% less chance of dying. And thrombotic events, right, yes, yeah, so both of them 8%. Gotcha. So if you were 100% more, that would be 10 times that or something. Correct. Gotcha. And um, is it not possible that the doctors who are prescribing one thing or another, the patients are different, or maybe just the, the healthier patients are getting the drugs or something? So it's, we try to adjust for multiple things, including uh, comorbidities, including socioeconomic status. Of course, you know, this is a retrospective study, and uh, uh, as any retrospective study, it may uh, have uh, certain shortcomings. Having said that, we're confident in our data and the fact that hydroxyurea and phlebotomy use is associated with improved outcomes in these patients. So was that surprising? I mean, people have been prescribed this for a long time, right? Uh, yes, you know, but uh, there is concern that uh, hydroxyurea, for example, is underused because of its stigma as a uh, uh, chemotherapy drug, which may predispose to the development of cancer. I see. So, um, so you think there's been a reluctance to use it on some practitioners or patients' parts? Correct. Uh, also, uh, the European Leukemia Net guidelines were published in 2011, and uh, uh, NCCN guidelines uh, came up with their version of MPN guidelines in 2017. So perhaps familiarity with the guidelines is not fully there, and further education of uh, providers taking care of these patients uh, may improve this uh, type of uh, uh, drug utilization. I see. So, so NCCN is the American, is an American set of guidelines uh, from uh, various cancer centers, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. And Yale Cancer Center is participating in NCCN. I see. And, and this European one, do they both recommend hydroxyurea? Yes, they do. Uh, both of them recommend hydroxyurea as one of the frontline treatments uh, for uh, patients with uh, polycythemia variant essential thrombocythemia who require cytoreductive therapy. <laughs> There's that word again. So um, is this really one of the first studies to validate this improvement? 
So for patients, we, we have two studies. One of them is for PV and another one is for ET. And for PV, which is Pivera, uh, sorry for using this abbreviation, which may not be uh, familiar to all of our listeners. Uh, for PV, uh, I would say the data behind uh, guidelines recommended cytoreductive therapy with hydroxyurea was quite weak. It is based on old uh, uh, polycythemia vera group studies and some other retrospective analyses. So I think adding to the bulk of this data helps uh, to convince some people to use this medication. Uh, for high-risk patients with polycythemia vera. Hmm. What kind of feedback have you gotten since the publication of the paper? So uh, I think, uh, in general, uh, what uh, this uh, published paper does, it supports current guidelines. And uh, we see that guidelines are using more and more frequently. And, you know, I cannot say that this is... uh, uh, my doing, but I hope that there was some small contribution uh, from me to that as well. Well, I think it's pretty important. I think that uh, when I first heard that you were doing this research, I honestly said, really? You're going to study hydroxyurea? I mean, how boring is that? And yet, uh, you know, when you look uh, and say that we have a lot of practices that we do because we've had them from time immemorial, and they've never really been tested, right? And uh, and uh, and you've really shown something uh, that uh, I mean, it's a pretty impressive survival benefit that you've demonstrated. I agree. I agree, and I think it helps my patients and my discussion with my patients uh, to uh, understand the potential benefit. Dr. Nikolai Podoltsev is an associate professor of internal medicine and hematology, and associate director of the hematology oncology fellowship program at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.